The Dating Game Killer by Hollywood and Crime contains depictions of violence and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. From Wondery, this is Hollywood and Crime. I'm Tracy Patton. Today, our special episode of The Dating Game Killer, L.A. Serial Killers, A Conversation. I'm here today with retired LAPD detectives Tom Lang and Bob Souza. They're the co-authors of a great new crime book, which I just started reading, Malice in Wonderland, about the Wonderland murders. So Tom and Bob were part of our season three special episode where our writer-director Larry Brand interviewed them about being lead detectives on the case. They gave us an insider's look into the robbery and revenge rampage that led to four gruesome deaths in the summer of 1981. And also with us is true crime social historian Joan Renner. She has a fascinating blog called derangedlacrimes.com, and she's the author of The First and the Latest Aggie Underwood, the Los Angeles Herald and the Sordid Crimes of the City. That is one long title. (laughs) And she's also a regular guest on Hollywood and Crime. So welcome to all of you. It's so great to have you all back. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Tracy. We're glad to be here. So before we begin, I just want to take a moment to remember our wonderful writer-director, Larry Brand. He passed away in his sleep two weeks ago. I can't believe it was just two weeks ago. And I just want to say for me, I loved voicing Larry's powerful and beautiful words in seasons two, three, and now season four. So we'd like to dedicate this season, The Dating Game Killer, to Larry. And you know what I was thinking when I was preparing for this? I was remembering all of us being at the L.A. Film Festival just last fall and being on that panel with Larry. So it was, I'm just glad we all had that time together. I understand Larry was a real pro. I mean, if you wanted to learn something about what you do for a living, you want to meet that man and sit down with him, just watch him. Yeah. And he could push himself and push himself and push himself and then push himself some more. That was the type of guy he was. He just pushed the envelope until it he fell did. off the table, and then he'd get up and do it again. Uh, just a, a, a solid guy, a nice man, very objective, incredibly intelligent, and I, I just can't imagine anybody being any better at what they did than Larry was. Larry had an immediate positive effect, uh, even on my family who met him at the film festival. Uh, he was very interested in my granddaughter, who was getting ready to go on tour, and uh, her fiance at the time, who's a professional drummer, and Larry showed such interest in what they were doing that when I told them about Larry passing, my granddaughter actually broke into tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an effect he has on people from the beginning. I was, It really impressed me when I met him the same way. You feel like you've known him all your life. Very, very pleasant man. Yeah, that, that event was the first time I ever met him, and I was taken right away with his intensity such an intense person, and his intellect struck you right away. Yeah. Very quick, very sharp, and I loved his work ethic. I mean, it's like Tom said, you could tell he was the kind of person who would just push and push and push and then take half a breath and push beyond. <laughs> and I, I, I really admire that in someone. I'm just, I'm just sad that I never had a chance to know him better. Well, I'm so glad that uh, he was able to hear when he was in production for um, – for the dating game killer. He was able to sit and he put all the music together, of course, and he got to listen to how it all went. So um, for that, we're glad. And I know he's here in spirit. So let's just jump in and talk about um, this bizarre case, the dating game killer, and, and which is about the life and crimes of Rodney Alcala, who in the end turned out to be a serial killer. So Tom and Bob, let's let's just talk about this notion of the serial killer name was named back then, right? And it became a thing. Um, so how did that impact you in working in the homicide unit and, and all the work you were doing back then? Well, that uh, back in the 70s and the 80s, when we were in robbery homicide, we worked in a specialized unit called Homicide Special Section. And we would work high-profile cases, serial killing cases, Cases that took time and, and effort, whereas a lot of other uh, geographical divisions wouldn't have the time or the resources to handle. So we were 
moving along with cases like the Laurel Canyon case mm -hmm. and a couple others, the uh, Dorothy May Arson murders, 25 people lost their lives there. And then you, all of a sudden you get this serial killer situation. When you have a murder investigation, you're not thinking that you're going to have a suspect involved in any other cases. It's completely different with a serial killer because you know that the killer is still out there. Killer is still active. On the Dorothy May or the Laurel Canyon case, it's over. Now we can get to work on the evidence and see if we can put this together for filing. Serial killer is completely different. You've got one or two victims out there. You link those victims. You know you have a serial killer. Mm -hmm. And so it changes a lot of things. It changes what you do as far as strategies uh, and what you're looking for. And, and with a serial killer... One of the things you use in linking, we call linking the murders, is the M.O., of course, the modus operandi. And we go beyond that to things like the signature. Uh, if there's body dumps, you look at the posing, which could be a signature. In other words, a signature is something in a serial killer that goes beyond the, uh, the, the M.O., something that, that should be kept just between you and, and the perpetrator. You don't want that out to the media. That's a big problem with a lot of serial killing cases and some jurisdictions who don't have experience handling those, they let too much information out. Because this guy is still out there, or gal, there are women too who have been serial killers, you want to keep everything you have close to the vest. And that can be very difficult, especially when you get a lot of publicity in a case. Well, Bob, weigh in about this. About yeah, that era was so unique. Uh, we, were, we were all seasoned homicide detectives. But when the serial killer era hit, we were kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool and we had no real prior experience with serial killers. We had to figure it out. And the city, uh, not only the police department, um, but the city attorney's office, everybody, the DA's office, everybody was concerned that the public shouldn't know, oh, my God, there's a serial killer. We knew it was happening, but they wanted to keep as close to vests as they could. But normally, usually the press would break it wide open, and now... We have to deal with it. But I think we didn't have uh, serial killer profiling at the time. This was before the FBI really in Quantico just uh, had their unit together. And so we were pretty much on our own figuring it out. And as these cases went on, our office was we had a new task force almost weekly. And as the cases went on, we got better at it. We found out that we have to keep track of the clues. We have to prioritize the clues, which ones we had to bring in more teams just to handle clues because we had to handle the case in proper. So they would give us the uh, top priority clues, and we'd run with those. Those were usually if we had a suspect, a license plate number, or something that was substantial. But there were a lot of peripheral clues uh, that had to be checked, and that's why we brought in. We kept bringing in more and more people, and these task forces grew to 50, 60 officers that we were in charge of to make sure that they were doing what they should be doing. Hollywood and Crime is brought to you by Grand Central Publishing and the book Crooked River, the startling new Agent Pendergast novel from Preston and Child. Preston and Child's master detective AXL Pendergast is back and racing to uncover the mystery of several light green shoe-clad severed feet found floating in the Atlantic. No one is sure what happened, why, or where the feet came from, and they desperately need to know are the victims still alive? Crooked River is full of shocking twists and turns, and all trails lead Agent Pendergast to a powerful adversary with a sadistic agenda, an adversary who sees Pendergast as an ideal subject for their malevolent research. The Pendergast series has been called consistently exciting and never predictable by the Associated Press, and the Washington Post raves about Preston and Child, there's nothing else like them. Crooked River is available now wherever books are sold. Visit PrestonChild.com for more information. Okay, Joan, mm -hmm. your background is social historian. You look at the impact of, of like, yeah. culture. And so and, and I, in your book, Bob and Tom, Malice in Wonderland, you talk about the 60s through the 90s being the most high-crime murders, the most murders happening in those decades. So my question to you, Joan, is what what do you think was happening? Do you think it the, the culture had something to do with it? Well, it always has something to do with it, I think. And But what 
I think a lot of experts have looked at this because it was a phenomenon. It didn't happen before. To my knowledge, it hasn't happened since. And so it was just this moment in time. So what was at play? There were a few things culturally maybe that had some impact on it. Um, The 70s, for instance, is known as the decade of decadence and rightfully so. There were uh, baby boomers were in their 20s, and they were going to bars and discos, and there were a lot of bad decisions fueled by coke and uh, naivete, maybe. And I, I think that culturally, maybe that made it easier. Whatever, whatever makes it easier for a killer, I think, is um, a, a victim pool. And I think that that Hollywood in L.A. at that time was just an enormous, never-ending source of possible victims because you had, you had a lot of people out and about. There was sort of a sense of a new freedom in the air. If you look at the women's movement, there were a lot of cultural touchstones, things going on that sort of fed into that. But I still don't think any of those things explains why serial killers, why Los Angeles, and why then? It's, it's still sort of, it's, it's like an unknowable, at least at this point, phenomenon. There's a lot of possibilities, but no real answers. Well, you made a good point, uh, a victim pool. I like that. <laughs> it's a huge victim pool, because if you look at the serial killings, we broke them down into four MO areas, and they include uh, someone like the, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, would break and enter and commit mayhem, murder, rape, whatever. That was one type of M.O. He had another M.O. which would, uh, the freeway killers, one of them, Bob Handel, the William Bonin case, we had four or five different freeway killers at the same time who would abduct women and men and mutilate the bodies sometimes, rape and everything else, and then dump the bodies along the freeways. Then you had the uh, just the regular stalk and kill. We had four... Uh, uh, serial killers involved in the Skid Row stabbings uh, and that of homeless people as well as the transients, four of those, again, just stalk and kill. So there were various MOs, and but like you said, they were all part of a victim pool. I really like that, <laughs> and it's true. That was probably a big reason for that, and again, this was before social media. This was before everybody had a camera. Yeah. This is before computers, really. People didn't have cell phones. Today, that's, everything has changed in the communications. These people could really get away with a lot more back then, quite frankly, than you could today. There were so many murders at that time that we were called on quite often. We had visitors from all over the, actually all over the world, that were concerned that this was going to branch out and involve other cities, other major cities. Just about detectives from almost every major city were contacting us. What is going on in Los Angeles? Uh, we had f- same thing with we had Nor- we had uh, German, uh, British, had detectives coming from Scotland Yard to see what was going on. In fact, I started lecturing out of state. There was a tri-state area in Arizona, and I'll never forget it. One of our seminars, we had uh, detectives from all over the Phoenix area, and one of them came up to me on the break and said, "Do you realize you handle more murders in a weekend than we do an entire career? Because quite often we would get three or four in a weekend." And it was just absolutely mind-blowing. But at the time, all we thought was, this is what we do. Yeah. We, it was kind of normal to us. But now that we think back on it, uh, detectives nowadays pretty, have, pretty well have it made with a third of the crime rate we had. So. We didn't have any time to worry about that. <laughs> you didn't have time to think Nobody about it. Nobody worked eight or ten hours. I mean, we did, Laurel, Laurel Canyon were there for over 30 hours. Yeah. And Laurel Canyon, Wonderland murders. Yes. yes. And yeah. that, was, that was, I was going to say, what, what case... What cases really stand out for you guys? And I know the Wonderland murders was the first time you two worked as a team in a high-profile case. Yes, that's true. I think the Dorothy May fire stands out to me. Uh, innocent people all died in a, in a senseless fire. It was a young man who was getting back at his uncle, and he started the fire. And like the arson investigators we worked very closely with, they said if he was a professional arsonist, he couldn't have done it any better. It was perfect. So he Perfect just got condition. lucky. He got lucky. Perfect conditions. But 20, 25 people died. And it, that, was, that was a tough one because all the bodies are at the corners off at the same time, and I just stood the autopsies one by one. And it just went on for two or three days, and it was, it was devastating. One of our detectives actually went off with an emotional problem. 
because wow. he was involved in that case with us. But it involved a lot of other things that we'll do that on another show. <laughs> but, <laughs> We've got but, a lot more shows. But, but we have many more a, shows. But that's a memorable case, and I'm sure Tom's got others too. That, well, publicity-wise, obviously the Simpson case. But I have to tell you, Simpson case to any homicide cop is what we call a turkey on a platter. Ninety percent of murders, you're going to have something exculpatory. It's normal. Any investigator looks for exculpatory evidence in his investigation. It's only going to strengthen his investigation or her. But as far as the Simpson case, uh, there was nothing exculpatory which is very rare in a murder case. Every single thing of a substantive nature in Simpson was inculpatory, down to the shoe size of the bloody footprints at the scene. So what does inculpatory mean, then? It's inculpatory the means evidence that shows that your particular suspect probably committed the crime. And I'll give you a quick quick uh, example of that in Simpson. I, I, I like to use Simpson because it's so easy. I mean, there, are, there, there were many suspects eliminated, but all the evidence only went in one direction. That was to O.J. Simpson. There was a bloody footwear impression at the scene. Very clear. And alongside the bloody footwear impression, there was a trail of blood tailing to the rear of the, of the location. So we knew that the suspect, whoever that was, had a wound somewhere on the left side of, the, of their body. That footwear impression was 12 inches. When we did the search warrant at Simpson House, I grabbed a pair of his shoes and asked him if these were his, and he ever worn them. He said, yeah, in fact, I wore those last night. They were size 12. We had size 12 bloody footwear impressions at the crime scene. If those were size 10, that's exculpatory evidence. That would be something the defense would want. Mm -hmm. That's normal in any case, but that didn't have any. But again, that's a turkey on a platter. Nobody wants to buy into Simpson as a suspect. Quite frankly, that's their problem. The most difficult and perplexing case we had is the one that Bob and I had, though, to me, was the Wonderland case, because it took 20 years. And every facet of a police investigation was involved at one time or another. So for me, it's the Wonderland case. Yeah, that was a pretty gruesome case. And, I, and it's so fascinating to watch. I, I was, we were just talking about this, the, the stuff that's on YouTube now, how you can watch crime scenes. Sure. And watching you guys go through that crime scene and describe what was going on was shocking to me that we have access to that. It's like a whole new well, world now. There was, there was an internal investigation regarding that and many other things in that particular case also. Uh, because that videotape that it was 25 minutes, it was the first time that it had been done in California where the videotape was actually admitted into evidence, the crime scene video. And it was shown to several attorneys, it was shown in court. Through discovery, we had to turn that video over. So who knows how that thing got into the movie Wonderland, but it did. It was part of the trailer of the movie Wonderland. So oh, somebody made some it. money on that thing. Uh, those types of things perhaps should have been shown in open court. Perhaps we should have all of the defense attorneys, and in this case, what, there were a dozen, at least a dozen attorneys Oh, the involved. dream team, yeah, at least. They all got uh, copies of the video, so who knows what happened to it. Joan, do you mm -hmm. want to weigh in on your thoughts about, well, I mean, I keep thinking about the media and how everything has changed now, but back then, even with these sensational crimes, there's a problem, right, with this whole focus that the media puts on it, and then you guys are trying to do your job, and then all this Well, no, everybody has a camera. Out. They have a camera with them all day, every day. And there are people who actually bait cops, you know, to try to get some uh, some damning video on them. There are, I mean, it's just, it, it's appalling. It, it's nice that there is, uh, maybe there's a level of, uh, a feeling of safety that comes along with, I have this camera, I can... Murders still happen. Rapes still happen. I think people are looking at their devices sometimes as a way to make money. I find that appalling, too. And the thing with the crime scene uh, videos I saw as when I was working with the Los Angeles Police Museum, we had, um, for something we were putting together, we had a copy of the Wonderland walkthrough. And that was one of the most revolting things I've seen ever i'm i'm of the uh, my personality is i'm fascinated with with crime but i like it in black and white i like old film noir Me too. i like you know yeah. i like and the, the old black yeah. and white crime scenes that's fine i've seen some awful crime scenes before but 
I prefer not to. And that Wonderland thing was just awful. And then once the press get their teeth into something, they can one of the I think one of the best examples of the press um, helping to blow a case was during the Night Stalker when um, Richard Ramirez went up to San Francisco and he committed. I see that Tom and Bob are both <laughs> nodding their heads. They know where I'm going with this. They, um he went up to San Francisco, killed um, Barbara and Peter Pan in San Francisco. Well, he part of what was was tying him to the crimes was a particular shoe, a, a particular brand of shoe, size of shoe. They had some excellent shoe prints as evidence of of the of the of the sus, of the suspect. And so he goes to San Francisco. He commits these crimes. Um, at some point. Uh, LA, I don't know if LAPD went, I know Sheriff's Department went up to San Francisco. They're, they're talking to detectives there. They think there's a link because it seems like there's a pretty obvious link between these cases. So they're talking. One of the things they, you know, the cops all knew to do was say nothing to anybody. They're sharing the information among themselves, but we're not going to put it out there and make it public. So Mayor of San Francisco at the time was Diane Feinstein. We know her in another capacity now. I know her as kind of a ditz because I think what happened there was there is a, a news conference. She goes out and says, we have the shoe. <laughs> we, we know what shoe the killer was wearing. And I you can see behind her, any of the cops that were there, their jaws drop. It's like, what is this? imbecile doing she's out there telling so uh, the story goes and but I asked I asked one of the detectives about this and he said maybe it's not true but as the story goes Robert uh, Richard Ramirez took his uh, via shoes and pitched him over uh, off the Golden Gate Bridge um, one of the detectives sheriff's homicide bureau detectives Frank Salerno who worked the case too said that that wasn't really true but it may have well been Richard Ramirez like a lot of killers and I know Bob and Tom can talk to this is that they keep up on the news too they like right. they're they're narcissists they like to see them they like to see stories about themselves in the newspapers they like to see stories on television and he while he may have been a lot of things he wasn't an idiot. Richard Ramirez was not an idiot. He was actually kind of bright, very articulate, and he was just evil. But he knew the shoes were, it was a type. What did he, so he, start, he was wearing different shoes. Again, this is the media taking something that should have been kept secret just for the, for the, the teams working on the case and left alone. But she goes out to, I don't know what, to, I don't know how that was going to get her votes. She's never had my vote, ever, for anything. <laughs> Those were Alva, Alva Tennis Shoes, and Gil Creel is the other sheriff yeah, who interviewed yeah. him. Gil's a good friend of mine. I love Gil. Good guy. Yeah, and, he's and a sweetheart. He's a very good cop, too. And, Great and, cop. And talking to Ramirez, Ramirez alluded to that. He said, I saw the mayor. I saw the press conference. Where are the shoes? What shoes? I mean, yeah, what shoes? Got rid of them. If you've ever looked at luxury clothes, jewelry, and art and thought you'd never be able to own them, believe me, I get it. But thanks to The Real Real, you can own iconic luxury items at unreal value. The Real Real is the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment from top designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and hundreds more at up to 90% off retail. New items appear on the site daily, and you can be sure of the quality of what you're purchasing because The Real Real employs over 100 brand specialists, gemologists, horologists, and art curators from around the globe who inspect thousands of items each day to ensure that every item is authenticated. Shop luxury the sustainable way. If you're a consigner, you can set up a virtual appointment today with The Real Real's luxury consignment team. Get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com, promo code REAL, for 20% off select items. Our department, uh, Daryl Gates was the chief through much of our serial killer era. And Gates, the thing I respected about our chief was that he would call us up to his office. He didn't want to talk to the captain of the division. He didn't want to talk to commanders and deputy chiefs. He wanted to hear from the actual detectives. So when you went into Daryl Gates's office, uh, the ranking officers, they pretty much kept quiet because Daryl would talk to us direct. And he'd say, okay, guys, what don't you want me to put out? 
So we'd brief him, tell him everything he wasn't know about the case, but we have to keep this because the polygraph key, we don't want you to say anything about this. So he was very attentive to that, and it really worked well for us because he's poly once these kind of polygraph keys get out there, it just destroys your case. I mean, because it, it's going to go to court someday, and now you have a serious problem if, that's, if it's something the suspect knows, just like this is a perfect example of that when uh, Tom caught the OJ case. And I was fishing up in uh, Northern California, and I just saw this old TV in this little cafe. There was a black and white TV, and there was no sound. And I'm watching it, and I see the famous Bronco thing. And then I see Tom on the TV. I had no idea what was going on. So I called Tom, and I said, what's going on? He says, you haven't heard? I said, no. He says, OJ killed his uh, ex-wife and her, and, her, and her boyfriend. I said, it does look like a pretty good case. He says, I wish all of our cases were this good that we handled together. That told me a lot because Tom is a top professional, and he would never bullshit me. I mean, that was the real deal at that time. And then we all know what happened after that. Oh, God, it's such a, well, that's, I just 25 keep, years. And I, I'll just say this, I keep, when I met you, I keep, I see you on that witness stand and watching when I watched the trial. So it was, it was so surreal to meet you in person. Oh. And you were, you know, you became this, you did become kind of a celebrity, and you were saying the paparazzi was chasing you and how that hard that was for you. And that's the interesting thing about the, the thing for detectives and the media, and they're trying to do their job, and then they've got all this other stuff going on. Well, let's jump into Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer, which is such – I find it to be such a bizarre case. And one of the things that's so interesting is that most people don't know who he is, but he ended up, in the end, becoming this prolific serial killer. So what do you what do you guys – I mean, you were on the force mm -hmm. when this happened. You, you were both, right? We were both on the department. Okay, yeah. but you weren't on the case. No, no it was uh, – we were on several other cases, and, and Alcala falls within one of those four or five uh, snatch and uh, torture and rape and dump cases that we were talking about with the young women. And one of the uh, cases was found in the Hollywood Hills, and so our unit got involved. Jack Holder, now deceased, was one of the investigators that handled that. And while it was a possibility, he was part of the, he was part of the Hillside Strangler Task Force, which was another task mm -hmm. force we had with the Bono and Bianchi. Um, so Ocala was being looked at for that, but he, of course, was convicted of that Balka murder along with several others. But... What you look for, and you don't want to, there was a question about, well, why, why didn't the LAPD arrest him and book him? Uh, you don't, anything you do in a serial killing case, you're working with a district attorney's office. And you don't want to be making probable cause arrests on possible suspects because you're just giving grist to the defense team when it goes mm -hmm. to trial. You got to be very careful of that type of thing. So somebody else was handling Alcala, but he had crossed into uh, LAPD jurisdiction, and that's a major, major problem when you have a bunch of serial killing cases, and we were looking at seven or eight at the time within a few, few years period of time. We had four or five different policing agencies. They weren't communicating. They weren't saying, well, this we've got this, we got that. Uh, Bianchi on, on the hillside, we, had three, we were one of the three agencies that were looking at him as a possible suspect, and none of the agencies knew it. And he, and he actually went on a ride-along with LAPD past some of the dump sites, right in the middle of the killings. Bianchi did. So if, if, someone, if we knew what Orange County was doing, there was a victim in Glendale, if we knew what they were doing, and they knew what we were doing, maybe that wouldn't ride-along wouldn't have happened. Maybe oh <laughs> that's, that's a major problem, and it exists today. Because when I, I do instruction, and one of the first things that I talk about is a lack of communication. We used to go to work, we'd go grab a cup of coffee, and we'd start making calls and setting up interviews with other police agencies and witnesses. We wouldn't do it over the phone, and we certainly wouldn't do it online. Today, they come in with a cup of coffee, they open their laptop, and they're trading evidence online. You don't do that. You've got to go out, let's have a beer tonight, look each other in the eye, and let me, get, let me see what you're all about. And the same in the morning of a cup of coffee, let's discuss evidence. You don't do it online. That's that's the, the problem that still exists today, that lack of communication. Isn't that that's just that's so striking to me because they talked a lot about that with 9-11. That was a huge problem. Yep. And, it, and if it's still this problem today. It, it always comes down to the human element. 
And I saw it in uh, the serial killer cases I handled, especially with Bonin. It involved several jurisdictions as well as L.A. County sheriffs. And they were smaller. Some of them were smaller departments. And luckily, my partner and I at the time, we established communication. He had a partner before me. John St. John was the lead investigator from the get-go on that case. They brought me in because his partner was a little arrogant and wanted to keep things kind of close to the vest. And the same with all these detectives. Everybody wants to be the one that, that gets the guy, you know. And so they put me in to, to mix it up a little bit. Let's get to know these other detectives. I mean, let's let's have some kind of a rapport here. This is ridiculous. And so I tried to do that. Um, and, and, and it worked. I mean, to a certain extent, it worked. But uh, Orange County, for instance, they had a suspect early on, Bill Bonin, and they followed him for a couple of weeks. They wrote him off. And so at these meetings, we'd have these big task force meetings. And, oh, well, Bonin's no longer a suspect. We, we kind of discounted him. So we, we kind of accepted that. Well, Bonin killed 25 kids after that, young men. And they had let him go, but not wasn't completely their fault. But maybe we should have looked at him a little further instead of just writing him off as a suspect. Um, so those kind of things, like Tom says, this communications issue, uh, we we really worked at, at having this rapport. We sit down and have drinks in the evening. We we wanted to have a friendship and a working relationship mm -hmm. as opposed to an adversarial, uh, which quite often it was because everybody wants to be the guy, you know. The, and John was, they were jealous of him because he got a lot of press being number one detective. He was badge number one and he was senior man. And it was a pleasure to work with John. He knew, you know, I wish I knew as much as he had forgotten. You know, but he was, anyway, and that was kind of a rub. with everybody. So it came back down to communication, like Tom says. And even on the, uh, uh, the Manson case, I happened to work with Danny Galindo, who was the lead investigator on LA's case, on the Tate LaBianca. He swore that the Lobiancas was a copycat. They yeah. just, he discounted it. He said it was the biggest mistake he ever made in his life. And he told me that I was much younger than him at the time, fairly new detective, compared to his 30 years. He said, Bob, remember something. Don't ever have tunnel division, and don't ever think it's a copycat. Always think that they're, maybe they're connected. He says it'll save you. And he was right. There's no question about it. Speaking of copycat and the Rodney Alcala thing and the Hillside Strangler case, I think it was so interesting because at first, right, the, the LAPD thought it was it was Hillside Strangler the, because it was Jill Barcombe up in the Hollywood Hills, and the way she was placed, they thought, well, it's got to be the Hillside Strangler, right? So when it turned out to be Rodney Alcala, do you think he did this on purpose? Did he place the body like that, or do you think it was just? I don't a think fluke? we'll ever know, but I wouldn't certainly put it past him. I mean, here's a guy, and was there three trials, and on the third trial he defended himself, exactly, made yep. a complete ass out of himself. You know, something wrong with somebody like that. So he could have done that, I suppose, but we didn't know. Nobody knew. And how did he get away with this for so long? I know there wasn't forensics back then, but that just baffles me that, that he was able... I mean, he went to New York, of course, changed his identity. Yeah. And then, of course, the whole crazy thing about the, the dating game, I, that story is so yeah. crazy, the way that the detectives saw him on the dating game just by chance, and it was a, it was a repeat, um, a, a rerun, and he had the hubris to appear on the dating game. We were discussing that. We were, we were discussing yeah. that with Joan about sociopaths. I'll let Joan uh, address yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's, part of the, that's part of it. It's for a sociopath, I mean, they're, like Rodney Alcala is just a, a malignant narcissist. Everything's about him. Um, his motive, if you're looking for a motive for the murders, it's sexual gratification. I don't think there's any other motive really there. It's not robbery. It's not any of the other things that you might commit a murder for. Or torture also. Torture. Yeah. yeah. Again, sexual gratifica gratification. This is what he does. He enjoyed it. And I think in part, if there was a climate that created the, you know, the pool of victims, there was also a climate that um, prevented him from doing any real time. The, the, I think the cops always had a feeling about him once they once they talked to him and once and especially after he snatched the little girl in Hollywood, um, but there was a climate. Rose Bird, I'm sure that um, you remember her. One of the, the she was the first woman I think on the California Supreme Court. Rose Bird was a uh, fierce uh, 
opponent of the death penalty, which is fine. That doesn't necessarily mean she's um, a bad jurist. What made her so uh, destructive in a lot of these cases was that she wanted to fit the law to her point of view rather than understanding that the law is something that she had to fit her point of view to. You couldn't do it the other way around. So I think during her watch, I think there was something like more than 60 people were released, you know, on appeal because she just didn't, she just couldn't deal with the death penalty. This is part of the climate. And so I think Rodney Alcala was able to game the system. He's, he's, not an, he's not an idiot, although, as Tom said, he proved himself to be kind of a big idiot in court. But that was, that, that was just a function of his narcissism. He thought he was, he thinks he's smarter than everyone else. And, but I, I think that, um, where was I going with this? That, help me out here. Well, you were t- talking. Well, we were talking <laughs> about Rodney. Sociopaths and grabbing the limelight. Yeah, oh, and that's the thing. And I think, but I think that's another part of that puzzle is that he he was good enough. I mean, he he's not. He wasn't a bad looking guy. It's not appealing to me. But he wasn't a bad looking guy for the time. And he was on the dating game, right? Good enough for that. And he and, got picked. And he got picked. Well, she, I mean, she quickly because, saw that was a bad because idea. Because of the banana, which yeah. is so bizarre. But yeah, <laughs> but, it was. But I think in part he used his personality as a way to attract women victims to him. So his personality wasn't displeasing. His looks weren't scary. Um, so he did, he was the same game when he was when he was in prison. He you know he. If you think that shrinks can't be fooled, uh, you got another thing coming. And so he was able to say, you know, they a lot of times they kicked him loose. They thought he was cured. Whatever was wrong with him, he's fine now. You know, let's just send him back out. And because he did then move to New York, he, he went across the country a couple mm-hmm. times. In fact, the most recent case attributed the most recent trial or jury, whatever it was, was 2013. You know those pictures, right, that were distributed, mm-hmm. the hundreds of photographs he'd taken of women. Some of them couldn't be shown because they were so sexually suggestive. Or, or But one of the, one of the um, a sister of a woman who went missing saw one of the photographs that was included in that whole array of photos. And she recognized her sister. And her sister had been missing. Right. And she said, oh, my God, I, I can tell it's her because she has something, a little crook in one of her little, in her yeah, baby her toe. Little toe, little toe. Yeah. And she recognized her. And sure enough, um, they were then able to, she'd been a Jane Doe forever. And she was on a motorcycle, posed on this motorcycle. Uh, the chances of it being Rodney Alcala, I'd say 99.999%. And... Of those photographs that are still people who haven't been ID'd, how many of them are victims? There's definitely more victims. The Dating Game Killer is brought to you by Best Fiends. You know that moment when you reach for your phone, you look at the screen, and then you realize you can't remember why you picked up your phone in the first place. I'm really trying to avoid all the mindless scrolling we're all prone to. So lately, when I find myself picking up my phone, I play a few levels of Best Fiends. Best Fiends is this five-star rated mobile puzzle game that's unlike other puzzle games out there, mostly because it feels like an adventure. You're playing strategically with these bugs, they're the fiends from the title, and your job is to help them defeat these slugs that have started taking over their land. Even though the game is casual, at every level you play, the objectives for each puzzle change. As you continue to play, the puzzles get a bit more challenging, and you get to think about strategy. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. So check it out. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. We get support from the murder mystery subscription box, Hunt a Killer. I'd thought about trying Hunt a Killer for a while, and after spending too many nights watching TV, I finally took the plunge. It was so exciting to get my first box in the mail, open it up, and see all the clues inside that I'd be using to solve the mystery. My box's theme was a murder at an old theater. Being able to hold old letters, read the play program starring my suspects, and even inspect a real metal cufflink 
totally transported me from my slippers into my detective shoes. I'm still in the middle of cracking this case, and I love that one small box is delivering days of entertainment. Now it's your turn. Take advantage of time spent inside at home, whether you're alone or with others, and break out Hunt a Killer. Right now you can go to huntakiller.com slash dating game and use promo code dating game at checkout for 20% off your first box. That's huntakiller.com slash dating game for 20% off and to show your support for our show. Huntakiller.com slash dating game. One of his signatures was the fact that he would pose as victims. And that's something that you look for in linking. And it's also something you look for when you're trying to figure out what happened. Uh, when you pose a victim after you've murdered somebody and you dump them somewhere, and you po- that takes a little bit of time. So this guy had absolutely nothing going for him. I mean, he was a, a psychopath of the, of the first order. He couldn't care less that he would pose, take the time to actually pose a victim. And then also he took trophies. He would take jewelry from some of his victims that he kept. And we had couple of cases. Well, Skid Row Stabber was one. That's how we ended up nailing him because he would take little trophies and keep them. So this is how some of these guys think. So in the photographs you mentioned yeah. with, with Alcala, he'd probably go back and look at them from time to time and get off on it. I, I mean, imagine, that's that's yeah. what goes on in the minds of these total sociopaths. No conscience about anything or anybody. It's yeah. all about me and anything that I want to do with my victims because they're under my control. It's really unfortunate that uh, some of these attributes these serial killers have, it's wasted on them. I mean, it's for really bad, bad purpose. I think Bianchi and Bundy are two that come to mind. I mean, they were able to really uh, um, seduce women. They had the charm and they had the charisma. And and, and, then there's that dark underneath where everything they did was nefarious. But uh, they did have that ability. And uh, Bideker and Norris, not so much. They actually had to violently kidnap their victims and subdue them. And uh, uh, Bideker never cooperated, but I was fortunate enough to be able to interview uh, Norris. And Norris, in talking to him, uh, it would be like us discussing where we're going to have lunch tomorrow. He's talking about how they would grab these young girls and how they'd torture them. But what we were there for really was to get an idea of his, his MO, his method of operation of how they worked. We thought, well, maybe our serial killer is doing similar things. And he was the one that told us about, uh, you're, you're looking for probably, uh, you're looking for a white guy, you're looking for a guy that uh, probably has a van, and they use the, with a sliding door as opposed to one that opens out. They don't want people behind them or in front of them seeing what's happening. They can pull right up to the curb and grab a young woman right off the park bench or entice her in with marijuana or alcohol, young girls. And that's kind of how they operated. And he would tell us these things that, as it turned out, Bonner did have a van with a sliding door. Um, but he told us about how they would purposely try to fool the cops, and they had followed the serial, the the, uh, uh, the freeway killer. They had followed those stories, said, well, we're going to start grabbing girls from different different cities, and we'll dump them in another area. We'll confuse the cops. He said, we had they had all that going on. And they had studied L.A. cops. They knew that L.A. cops and L.A. sheriffs, when they stopped you, they'd jack you up. They'd get you out of the car. They'd search the car, even though maybe they're not authorized to do it, but that's what they did. The smaller departments were more politically oriented. They would stop you. They might write you a ticket. But they're not going to get you out, and they're not going to search your car. So they liked operating in the smaller cities for that reason. So they knew. These guys aren't stupid. I mean, they know. And you always read these things about, well, serial killers really just want to get caught. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> they, don't want, they don't want to get caught. You know, They want to keep going. Bonin was he loved killing young boys. So um, it's just interesting to me that, that, that the, uh, the mindset is so wasted on an evil person. Right. But Interestingly, you know, we talk about pairs of serial killers. We actually had a pair, male-female, uh, the Sunset the Strip sunset Killers, strip killers. Uh, Doug Clark and Carol Bundy. And they would, she'd pick up guys and take them out to the truck, and uh, either one of them would kill them. In one instance, they beheaded the, this, I think she was a prostitute, they beheaded her. And uh, Doug Clark would keep the head in the freezer of his refrigerator at home, made up with lipstick, <gasps> mascara, and this type of thing. And from time to time, it'll be, it'll be raunchy here, but what happens, happens. He'd take the head out of the freezer and have sex with it. 
Oh my! Was this a case? Clark. Was this a case you worked on? I didn't work on that. LAPD, Robert Hill side. Leroy Orozco had it. Yeah. Uh, I worked along Cuba. along with him a little bit on the case, but uh, everybody works a little bit on each case. Yeah. But it's, it's primary investigator, so it was another team that that had that one. But this was part of that same era. All these things were going on at the same time, so everybody had a case going. You know, and it's so interesting. So today. Is it not as it's? We don't hear about serial killers. So well, what what has happened? It happens, quick, but not like this. Quick statistic: nineteen ninety two, the city of Los Angeles, one thousand ninety four murders. Excuse me, homicides. Sometimes people get homicide and murders mixed up. One thousand ninety four homicides. People died. The vast vast majority of those one thousand ninety four in nineteen ninety two were murders. Last year in the city of Los Angeles, two hundred and fifty eight. That represents over a 75% decrease in homicides from our period to today. So do they have as much to do? Probably not. Today, though, you have things like DNA. You have a cold case squad. What does a cold case squad do? They take unsolved murders and run the, all the evidence for DNA. That's a cold case, and they solve a lot of cases. The uh, Southside serial killers we had uh, in the middle mid-80s, in uh, South Central Los Angeles. We looked at over 100 murders of prostitutes. We solved, I think, six or seven of them pre-DNA. DNA came along, put this thing together, and in the 90s, we ended up getting five additional killers. The Grim Sleeper and several others cleared all those homicides because they have DNA. So that's perhaps one reason. Another I alluded to earlier was social media. Everybody knows everything about everybody. <laughs> They do, and yeah. you got killers going online for crying out loud. And you wonder if, if yeah. you know, if there was social media back then in the mm. decades prior, you know, it would have been a different world. Because I mean, look at Rodney Alcala. I mean, he he's on the dating game and nobody <laughs> caught him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was just the craziest thing. But yeah. today, that would have never happened. Well, part of what the part of what was going on too, like in the eighties and stuff, you had the crack epidemic. So again, you have a victim pool. Who, because um, with the South Side ones, they were primarily prostitutes, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, yeah, yeah. and most of them had drug habits. Right. Um, sometimes it's hard to say what comes first, the drug habit or the, you know, the prostitution. That it, it's it's not an easy way to make a living. I I think you'd have to be drugged to want to do that. You mentioned about that in the media. The media had to have a serial killer in the South Side. Yeah. But we would tell the media, there's probably more than one killer, and many killers are tricks. Other prostitutes, dope dealers, pimps, they all kill prostitutes. There's not one killer. And the media had, oh, no, we got the Southside Slayer. The media is the one that they uh, like to name them. Southside right. Slayer. Yeah. They wouldn't listen to us. And we had a three-year task force at all of those murders. Cleared a lot of crime, but only a very few murders until DNA came along. Of course, today you wouldn't hear, oh, gosh, we were wrong. There were several <laughs> killers. But it's, the media has to have conflict. Like Bob always says, a story is not a story unless there's conflict. And you got op-ed on page one now. It's been a problem for law enforcement, still is today. Yeah, and prostitutes are an easy pool of victims. I mean, they have been since Jack the Ripper. Who did all he kill? over the world. We did, all over the world. We they, because they'll get into they get into situations with strangers. That's yeah, a recipe for sure. disaster. That problem exists everywhere in the world, that killing a prostitute. Yeah. This particular era that Tom and I were so involved in, uh, we talked about Wonderland quite a bit over the years. That's why we decided to write the book Malice. Since then, the more we talk, the more we realize what an anomaly that whole period of time was. And so we're now planning a second book, and uh, we're going to call it Homicides and Ugly Business and discuss a lot of cases. We did a little bit of that in, 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 a, in this book. Uh, on one chapter, we kind of devoted it to other cases that we'd worked on in serial killer era. But we want to do a book. Now, there's so much interest in it at this point, and we were there. We kind of got tired I mean, this... of we kind of got tired of investigative reporters reporting on cases we handled. So it's our turn. I was going to ask you guys what's next. So it sounds like that sounds like a fascinating book. Yeah, we're going to discuss a lot of cases in that book. I'm looking forward to that because one of the things I like most about Malice is that you have these little asides, you know, throughout. 
and and those and it sort of it pulls you in it draws you in it's like it's like you're there you know because there's it, nothing happens in a vacuum so you're working this case you're working other cases too yeah. you don't just have you know like it's not like you're assigned homework this is your one case you'll work it till it either comes to a conclusion or you know whatever no there's this a constant rotation and that's one thing I hope that you'll sort of continue to do well, in future books there's a reason for it Tom when we were writing it. Tom said, I hate footnotes. <laughs> Me and I, too. I said, okay, I well, that's fine. Let's not use footnotes. So that's when we decided to do that. Well, that and every, we have so a lot of, lot of positive comments on it. It so. really works. It works so well. And I'm, I, I really love that part of it. And again, it, it's a way to draw you in. Because again, with like the footnotes, like you say, you mm. don't like them. I understand why. Because it pulls yeah, you them. out of what you're doing. Because yeah. you have to boom, 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 boom. Okay. Yeah. Then boom, boom, back. No, not, not so it's much fun. Like, I like to just I'm go. sorry. It's kind of like our conversation here. As soon as one thing is mentioned, it sparks 15 <laughs> memories for me. And Tom and I are like this. <laughs> which, which one are we going to talk about? I was going to say... And we're gonna we'll wrap this up, but we're having you back. I mean, that's that's a done deal, right? Especially when the book comes out. Oh, but before then, please. and for next season, we're excited for for our season five. So um, we will have all of you back. It's been so fascinating. I have so many more questions, but but we'll save it for the next time. Mm. So thank you, Bob Souza, thank you for having us, Tom Lang, and Joan Renner. Thank you. And uh, here's to Larry. Yeah, and here's, and here's to, Larry. to Larry. Cheers to Larry. The Dating Game Killer was written and directed by Larry Brand and produced by Rebecca Reynolds, Tracy Patton, and Jim Carpenter for Hollywood and Crime. Producers wish to thank retired LAPD detectives Tom Lang and Bob Souza, co-authors of Malice in Wonderland, and author and social historian Joan Renner. Recorded and edited by Julian Nicholson and mixed by Mark Nieto for The Invisible Studios West Hollywood. Executive producers, Marshall Louie, Stephanie Jens, and Hernan Lopez. Hi, I'm Nikki Boyer, host of Wondery's new podcast, The Daily Smile. The Daily Smile is a new short-form show where we bring you feel-good stories of the day. From the NFL player who, after winning the Super Bowl, paid the adoption fees for every dog at his local shelter, to the gentleman in Brooklyn who used a modern twist to find love while social distancing during the quarantine. The Daily Smile is your new favorite source for good news, with stories that will give you all the feels, or make you laugh, or maybe even inspire you. Make The Daily Smile part of your day by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And for ad-free listening, go to WonderyPlus.com forward slash The Daily Smile.